0: Uh, Hey, are you making it through the Christmas season? Like this is always one of the most demanding seasons of the year, isn't it? And about right now, everyone's at the Christmas parties, the shopping, uh, all the food, the extra fudge. I mean, by this point, it's starting to kick into gear and uh, I think we should all get an award just for making it through the Christmas season, but... um. Anyway, my name's Michael, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to go into our time of teaching in just a minute, but uh, just uh, one important announcement I want to tag on, on top of what Johnny said. So he mentioned that live groups are are kicking off, we're excited about that, but uh, a few weeks ago I mentioned this, but if you were not here because there's a lot of holiday travel and stuff like that, I just wanted to mention again that... This, uh, this January, we're doing what we've done the last two Januaries is that as a whole church, we're taking this journey together, not only in our weekend series with a brand new uh, series is called, uh, 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 that's called Serving Sacrificially, Discovering Your Purpose, I'm very excited about um, but also, they're going to all be studying that same topic in our life group. So as normal, we'll be, uh, we'll be writing that, that study uh, for you. You'll be able to download it uh, from our website. Or if you don't have access to the internet, we'll have it out on the patio. And so we'll be providing most of the resources that you will need. But there is one that I know for sure, maybe others, but one I know for sure you will need and you will need an up-to-date, fresh copy of the famous book, The Purpose-Driven Life by, um, by Rick Warren. It's an awesome book. If you've got one that's 10 years old, you may want to update it because it's kind of been updated. Some, uh, uh, they've, All the mistakes were taken. I no, was kidding. Uh, but it's been updated with some new material, but also uh, the pages are different. And so to make this as, as easy as possible... We are offering this book at reduced rate, at unheard of rate, below Amazon rate. Um, And so I know that just doesn't happen, but only for this Christmas season and for you only. Um, So for just $11, no tax, that includes tax, 11 bucks, you can get your copy of Purpose Driven Life. So we've got some uh, available out there in the bookstore. If you wanna get a jump early Christmas, it makes an awesome stocking stuffer if you have a big stocking um so just want to let you know that uh we'll be getting more in but we've got uh, several hundred copies i believe that we're kind of starting the, the journey off with and so on of course if you want to watch, if you want to read it on kindle then that's great you can just kind of download that but i want to why don't you make aware of this, this study for those you've done the last couple studies um with us will probably be a little bit less intense uh, so we probably won't be doing that 5 day a week format. This will be uh, kind of somewhere between that and a regular life group study. Uh, <clears throat> but we're very excited about that. So just want to keep you uh, posted on that. But now we're going to go into our time of teaching. And so inside the program is a green and white message note sheet we use every week. But I always like to mention that because I know we have newcomers. And, and, uh, and as you look at your note sheet today, you notice there is like no white space on it right? Can you see that? So, um, good luck. That's all I can say. Uh, There's a lot we're coming over today. So, uh, let's pray together, and then we'll jump in. You guys ready to go? All right, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here in your place your house, underneath your leadership, under the guidance of your spirit, under the authority of your word. And we just want to proclaim, Jesus, that you are king and that we are subjects. We're under your leadership. And so we come today not just to go through the motions, not just to learn intellectually, but to come into your presence, to listen for the voice of your spirit, to be transformed, and most of all, to follow what you show us. We pray that, as always, you would give us grace that by your spirit you would be here in power. You would move us, as Ezekiel says, move us to do your will. Pour out your spirit amidst us so that we can always listen and follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Well, our story starts today on a hot August morning. And as he wakes up, he crawls out of the tent that's been in his home for the last month. He's living in a detention camp for prisoners, essentially a prisoner of war camp. He's outside the capital city looking back. It's hard for him to ever remove the graphic images of violence, bloodshed, and sheer terror that he's witnessed in the last month. He wonders if his life will ever be the same. This morning, as he gets up and he looks in towards the city, in the far, in the distance, on the very top of the city, he can see a small plume of smoke that's beginning to kind of waft its way up. And as he watches it, he's intrigued at what's going on in the city. But as he watches, the small plume turns into a dark, black, huge column. And now he can see the flames flickering high in the sky, raising to the heavens. And all of a sudden, he gets this this sick feeling in the pit of his stomach. And the anger begins to rise in his chest, the fury, the pain. Because he realizes all of a sudden that this fire is no accident. This fire has been set on purpose and there's no one who's going to step in and stop what's happening. He knows intuitively, though he can't see it with his eyes, he knows what's burning. And As he feels the tears begin to come down his cheek, all he feels is an impotent rage not knowing what is going to happen next. Well, today we are continuing this series that we've been in for the last, and this is week number nine. It's called Prophets, Priests, and Kings, Life Lessons from the Kingdom of Israel. And for those of you who are new, and every week we have some new people, every week, uh, that, for those of you who are new, this is a series about what we call the Kingdom Era of Israel. So the Kingdom Era of Israel starts with the rise of the very first uh, king, King Saul, about 1,000 years before Jesus. Uh, It's gonna go on for about 400 years to the year 586, 587 when the, the city of Jerusalem is finally destroyed. And uh, the reason we're going back to this era, what I like to call the the era of prophets, priests, and kings, it's the only time when you have all three in the kingdom of Israel. Uh, When you go back to this time, not only to better understand the story of the nation of Israel, uh, which in turn helps us to understand the big picture story God's telling in all the Bible for all our lives, but also because I want to highlight some of the key, critical, kind of crucial life lessons that flow out of the lives of these leaders, these prophets, these priests, these kings that uh, impact us today and teach us how to follow Jesus in our own lives. And so today we come to the the tale of the tragic end and destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And uh, in order to understand not only what happened but why it happened, once again, we're going to need some backstory. So there on your note sheet, you have a section called King Manasseh, the Backstory. And uh, once again, you see I placed this diagram we used last week of five key players or events that lead up to the final destruction of the, the kingdom. And uh, the first one there is, uh, you'll see is King Manasseh. And he reigns for uh, like 55 years. And you can see the dates from 697 697 to 643 BC. And so if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, this name will sound familiar because I've mentioned him just briefly the last couple of years. But King Manasseh was the worst king in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. He led the nation into a time of unprecedented rebellion, evil, uh, idolatry, and bloodshed, kind of oppression, injustice, in the capital city. In fact, his time was so bad as we'll see today that though the kingdom didn't end with him, it was the beginning of the end. The the kingdom never really rebounded, never really uh, came back from this era of darkness. And so today we're going to look at this reign of King Manasseh that's the beginning of the end so we can understand why the end came. But in order to really understand the reign of Manasseh and the events of his life, we need to understand the bigger picture story of Israel. And so once again, I want us to go back in time to the very start of their story. Now we've done this uh, several times in this series very intentionally I'm trying to drive this in so we understand the big picture story of the Bible. But let's go back, let's go back in time to when the nation of Israel first comes out of slavery in Egypt. They go, that God rescues them from slavery. You remember, he takes them to Mount Sinai. That's a three-month journey. Once they get there in Exodus 19, God reveals himself, an amazing display of power. He invites them into a very close relationship, what we call a covenant relationship, much like marriage, uh, I will be your God, you will be my people. They say, I do, and they enter into a marriage like relationship with Yahweh, like we saw last week in uh, Ezekiel 16. And of course, as I've said so many times, like any important relationship, uh, every relationship has rules of relationship, and especially in marriage, for better or for worse, rich or poor. The most important rule of relationship in marriage, like with a relationship with God, is no other uh, gods, right? No other relationship. This is an exclusive relationship. And part of that commitment on their part to have no other gods was also not to dabble in the dark side of like a cult in order to seek, to seek knowledge or power. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 18, which the whole book of Deuteronomy is a series of final, think of them like sermons from Moses to the people of Israel right before they go in the promised land. And so in Deuteronomy 18, here's an example of the start of the covenant. He says, when you enter the land that the Lord, and of course, Lord in all caps, what what does that mean? Good, yeah, so when uh, when you enter the land that Yahweh, your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the what? Yeah, the detestable ways of the nations there. So you're invading this land, Uh, one of the reasons God is sending Israel into the land is to drive out the nations there as a judgment for their detestable ways. So he said, so don't do like they do. So he gives a couple examples. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. So we've talked about this, in the Canaanite religion, especially the relation of Molech, uh, the, the uh, worship of Molech, you would offer your sons and daughters in the fire alive as a burnt offering to Molech. So none of that. And then he goes on and he says that also, uh, no one who practices divination or sorcery, so divination is trying to figure out the future through omens or through magic, of course, sorcery, uh, the use of magic to control things uh, to, uh, by the dark side power. So he says, um, but, uh, make sure that no one does uh, uh, divination or sorcery who interprets omens, who engages in witchcraft, casts spells, who's a medium, a spiritist, who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is what? detestable to Yahweh. Don't have anything to do with the dark side. And because of these, I want you to underline this last phrase. Because of these these same detestable practices, Yahweh your God will drive out the nations, all right? So I want you to catch this. This is what they're doing. This is why they can't stay. I'm using you to bring judgment. Don't do what they do, all right? So we're really clear. By the way, quick sidebar. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, as a culture, we are going more and more into the occult, aren't we? As a culture, we're being drawn rapidly into the occult. There's there's a huge vacuum of spirituality in our culture. It's drawing people to the dark side. It's not only seen as the dark side; it's often seen as the light side. In fact. We're told in 2 Corinthians that Satan will present himself as an angel of light. So a lot of the new age things that are coming are actually like occult a, a type things. And as followers of Jesus, it is so important if we're loyal to Jesus, we don't dabble in the dark side. We, don't, we, we aren't into astrology. We aren't into our signs. We're not into tarot cards. We don't go to seances. We don't do Ouija boards, we don't experiment with crystals, we don't, to do that is to betray our loyalty to King Jesus and to do that is to open ourselves for satanic attack on the dark side because you're going into the enemy territory and inviting the enemy into your life for knowledge or power. And when you open that door, you never know what's going to come through then I've seen disastrous results from believers in Jesus who've opened that door wittingly or unwittingly and are now dealing with the consequences, right? And so, so it's really important. As followers of Jesus, we don't do that. anyway. So, so Moses says, hey, rule number one, love God, don't do what the nations do. Now, at the end of Deuteronomy, we come to one of the most important chapters in the Bible. I've mentioned this before, Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses says, okay, so this is why, if you listen and follow Yahweh, here's all the blessings, and there's this long list of blessings in every area, but if you reject Yahweh, you don't follow his law, um, and you worship other gods, and you go into the dark side. Here's a long list of curses, and we don't have time to go over that, but at the end of that, I do want to point this one out, Deuteronomy 28, he says, at the end, if you continue to rebel, he says, if you do not carefully follow all the words of this law, which are written in this book, and notice that, what's that, carefully follow, underline that, all right? Carefully follow, not pick and choose. Uh, If you carefully follow all the words of the law, which are written in this book, and you do not revere the glorious and awesome name, Yahweh, your God, then Yahweh will scatter you amongst the nations from one end of the earth to the other, and there, once you get there, you will worship other gods." gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. So if you want to worship other gods, great, but what will happen is you'll lose the land. You'll be driven to a land where they worship other gods, and there you can worship them all you want, all right? So what I want you to catch is that right at the beginning of the covenant, that that what happens is God sets before his people life and death. Here's what'll happen if you listen and follow. Here's what'll happen if you don't. He says, it's your choice, but there will be consequences. Consequences of blessing or consequences of curse. Are, are you with me on this? Now, it's important that we understand the big picture story of Israel and how their story starts to understand how their story ends. And so today, with that background now, we're ready to go into the beginning of the end under the reign of King Manasseh in the south. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called King Manasseh, the beginning of the end. And if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, open them up to Second Kings chapter 21. All right, so... Manasseh was 12 years old. So remember, he's the first king in our diagram, right? Uh, He's the one on the left. Uh, He's 12 years old when he became king and he reigns in Jerusalem how long? Yeah, this is the longest reign of any king in the north or the southern kingdom. So his mother's name is Hephzibah, And he did evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and he followed the detestable practices the nations had driven out before it. So remember what we just read in Deuteronomy? You're going in, like don't follow the detestable. But that's exactly what he did. And as we read through, we're gonna see he did exactly what God said not to do. So he rebuilt the high places that his father King Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and, uh, and made Asherah poles. So we learned about Baal and Asherah, the gods, the gods of the, the Canaanites. We learned about them uh, back with Elijah. Remember we have the, the story about Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And that king that he confronted was King Ahab. And so what, what's going to happen is that uh, King Manasseh in the south is going to like, import the worship of Baal from the northern kingdom. And so it says that, uh, that uh, he, he erected altars to Baal, he made an astral pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And on top of that, he bowed down to all the starry hosts. And so he's going to worship what we call astral deities, right? So sun, moon, stars. Deuteronomy had also explicitly warned against this. And so he built altars uh, in the temple of Yahweh. So this is going to be important. Remember when uh, we go back to the kind of early on in the kingdom that Solomon builds the temple. And you remember that when he built the temple, he dedicated the temple. We saw that. And it's just an amazing dedication. And he says, Yahweh, would you come and live with us? Would you bring your presence here to this place? Uh, Would you put your name on this place and when we pray to this place would you answer us would you come and you remember that afterwards god appeared to him in dream and he said yes i will i've heard your prayer i will come and dwell with you and as long as you listen and follow and you don't worship other gods that my presence will be with you i will bless your nation i'll protect the nation just like deuteronomy said um, and, and I will protect you from your enemies, right? So, so now at the end of the kingdom, what's happening is Manasseh is not only going to introduce pagan worship, he's gonna bring the worship of other gods right in the temple of Yahweh. Right, he's gonna bring the altar of other gods into the courtyard. He's gonna bring the worship like an astral pole right in the temple. And so uh, in verse four, he builds altars in the temple of Yahweh in which the Lord had said, uh, back with David and Solomon, in Jerusalem, I'll put my name. And in the two courts of the temple of Yahweh, he built altars to all the starry hosts, and he sacrificed his own son in the fire. In fact, we know from Second uh, Chronicles 33, he sacrificed many of his own children. These were descendants from David. This was from the royal line of David. The royal, the, the, the great, 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 great grandchildren of David being sacrificed in fire to Moloch. He practiced divination. We just we saw it in Deuteronomy. Don't do this. So he practiced divination. He sought omens. He consulted mediums and spiritists. It's almost like he read Deuteronomy and said, now what are we not supposed to do? Hey, I'll do that. And so he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. And he took the carved Asherah pole he had made. He put it in the temple of which Yahweh had said to David and his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their ancestors, if only... They'll be careful to do everything I commanded them and keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not what? Listen. God was super clear. Blessing and curse, you choose. But they didn't listen. And so in verse 9, the people didn't listen. Listen. Manasseh led them astray. They did, in the catch they did more evil than the nations that Yahweh had destroyed before the Israelites. Uh, we, We have gone from them being the nations coming, kind of driving out the nations, to becoming worse than the nations. And so Yahweh said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins He's done more evil than the Amorites, uh, some of the Canaanites, who preceded him. He's led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, I am going to bring such a disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. It is going to be horrible. Skip to verse 14. "I I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance, kind of what's left, and I'll give them into the hands of their enemies. They'll be looted. They'll be plundered. They've done evil in my eyes. They've aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. And then moreover, Manasseh has also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. Besides the sin that he had aroused, caused Judah to commit, so they did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. You know, according to Jewish tradition... And we don't know this. This is Jewish tradition. So, you, you know, it's like, well, maybe, maybe not. But uh, according to Jewish tradition, you know, the prophet Isaiah that we, we said a couple weeks ago, he was a contemporary at the end of his life of Manasseh. And according to Jewish tradition that Manasseh executed Isaiah, and he did it by sawing him in half. So that gives you a, kind of a sense of uh, Manasseh, who he was, his evil. That's going to become very important. Later on right so so let's fast forward now we're going to fast forward from the time of manasseh maybe about 50 years we're coming towards the end of the kingdom era and in first kings 24 uh, 20, uh, 2 kings 24 when the nation's falling apart the surrounding nations are beginning to invade things are getting very dicey and there in your note sheet uh the author of second kings ties us all back to the, to the to manasseh the beginning of the end and he says, "Verse uh, there in your notes, surely these things, kind of this uh, kind of increasing destruction of the nation, they happened to Judah because of, according to Yahweh's command, in order to remove them from his presence. Remember, his presence is in the temple of Jerusalem because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and Yahweh was not willing to forgive and so we we kind of look back on that that era is a very dark era in israel's history the beginning of the end and if you've been here the last couple weeks you'll know there as you go back to our diagram that after after manasseh his grandson uh josiah becomes king and he actually is a good king and leads uh, to some level a national uh, revival but but right after him after he dies in 609 bc that uh, this superpower Babylon comes to power and they begin, as we talked last week, to kind of three successive um, invasions of Judah. And there in your note sheet, you see those three final blocks, right? Exile, so it says exile phase one, 605, that's when they took Daniel. Exile phase two, 597, that's when they took Ezekiel and 10,000 people with them. And then exile uh, phase three is when uh, the armies of Babylon came the final time, and when, when they came the final time, it was like a, a year and a half before 586, and the, the reason is because when they came, they put the whole city under siege, and it was a brutal siege. Remember what the, the, God said that he's going to make the airs tingle? It is a brutal siege that lasts for 18 months. People are starving in sight. It's horrendous. And finally, in the summer of 586, after 18 months, and remember I said last week it could be 586, 587, depending on the scholar you choose, but we know it's in July. So let's go to July of 586, that finally the armies of Babylon are able to breach the walls. And when they breach the walls, they come in, this massive army, mad as heck because for 18 months they've been frustrated and sitting out in this hot and freezing weather just trying to conquer this city and when they come in they they take no they're slaughtering everything they got their swords drawn and it doesn't matter old men young men young women it doesn't matter they are slaughtering the city the blood is running The temple is what people, many people are running to the temple thinking, hey, God will save us in his house, and they're just slaughtering them there in the temple. It's probably hard for us to begin to even understand the brutality of ancient warfare, how terrifying this would have been. That happens in July of 586, about one month later is when they're going to begin to burn the city. This takes us back to the story that we started the day with of this man who's for the last month been living in a tent in like a prisoner of war camp. He's one of the survivors that hid that day, was not slaughtered, and and he's one of the survivors that's in a prison camp outside the city looking up, and he sees this plume of smoke that kind of starts, starts small, and it gets bigger and bigger at the high point of the city, and all of a sudden it dawns on him what's happening. They're burning the temple. They are burning the place where God said, I will put my name here. They're burning the place where heaven meets earth. They're burning the place of God's presence. How can this be happening? How can God allow them to burn his home? But of course, the reason they're burning it is because it's a way of saying the gods of Babylon have defeated Yahweh of Israel. And from that point on, they're gonna to begin to level the city and burn the place to the ground. Never to rebel again, that's the thought. And at the end of 2 Chronicles, the very final, uh, final ch- uh, chapter, the author of 2 Chronicles gives his summary not only of what happened, but why it happened. And there in your note sheet, you've got it. 2 Chronicles 36, he says, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, he sent word to them through his messengers, like the prophets, right? Like we've studied in this kingdom era, like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Elijah and Micah and Jeremiah and so many others. He sent word to them, to his me- again and again, because he had pity on his people. He loves them. They're his bride, as we studied last week. And because he loved his dwelling place, you know, the temple. But they What? They mocked God's messengers. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh was aroused against his people and there was no more what? Remedy. Underline that. In this series, we've talked uh, uh, a lot about the two sides of God. We'll come back to this later today. We talked about Uh, This, uh, the amazing, his amazing grace. His grace is amazing, but his wrath is real. The two sides of God. And what's happened is that God has done everything he can to bring his people back. He sent messengers time and time and time again, but there's no more remedy. You know, in the Hebrew, that word for remedy is the word for Healing. It's like, Israel's is like a patient who's got a very serious disease. And God is coming and give them prescription after prescription. This is what you need to heal that disease. And time and time again, they've mocked the doctors. They've mocked the nurse practitioners. They've mocked the expert. We don't need that. We are fine. We're not sick. We will be okay and finally has come to a place they have mocked every prescription that God has given until there is no more remedy. There's nothing to be done for this patient. This patient is going to die. And so here's a description of that horrible day in July of five eighty six. He brought up against him the king of the Babylonians, and after 18 months, he killed their young men with a sword right in the sanctuary of the temple. He didn't spare young men or young women, the elderly or the affirmed. God gave them into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar, and he carried to Babylon all the articles of the temple of the God, both large and small, the treasures of Yahweh's temple, the treasures of the king, his officials, They set fire to God's temple. This is a month later in August of 586. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces. They destroyed everything of value there, and he carried into exile uh, to Babylon the remnant, those the survivors who escaped from the sword, and they became servants or slaves to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power which is going to happen, if you want to write this state down, in 539 B.C. And so we come to the tragic, the ending of this tragic tale, this story that starts with such a high note, high hopes, this amazing kingdom that God is raising up. Remember the time of David and Solomon, God's protection, their power, The wealth, the prosperity, everyone under their own vineyard. Uh, The silver is so plentiful. It's like stones in the street. This time of great prosperity and peace and power. The worship of God with David, the building of the, the, the temple, the dedication, God's spirit coming and filling the temple, this incredible start to the story ends in a tragic tale of complete destruction because of their ongoing rebellion and rejection of the covenant. Now, what I want to do today, as we come to kind of the end of Israel's kingdom era, is I want to highlight two big-picture life lessons that jump out to me as I look at this account, uh, and, then, and then come back at the end and ask one question, uh, kind, of, kind of pointed question for us. So there you know, it's such section called Israel's Tragic Tale, Two Life Lessons. The, the, first, the first principle that jumps out is that our choices lead to real consequences. As I look at the story of Israel from beginning to end, this amazing start, this tragic ending, uh, what jumps out is that, that our, our, the choices that we make in life, they, they really have very real consequences. As you study the story of Israel, one of the things you see is this relationship between choice and consequence. Like when we, we watch them come out of Egypt, we watch them go to Mount Sinai, we watch God reveal to them, and, and as God begins to reveal the covenant, they enter into covenant, God is very clear. And he reiterates this right before they go in the promised land. He says, I, I'm setting before you blessings and curses. If you listen and follow, this is what'll happen. Huge long list of blessings in every area of life, but if you reject me, here's what's going to happen. Long list of curses, and if you, list, and you do it long enough, If you reject my leadership long enough, it will come to the ultimate curse of losing the promised land I'm leading you into. In a sense, God's saying, I'm setting before you two paths, life and death, so choose wisely. In fact, this is exactly what Moses says in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. He begins to wrap up these final messages to the nation. They're in your note sheet. He says... uh, And then it's like a a courtroom scene, like the start of Isaiah 1. He says, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses, like a cosmic courtroom scene, that I have set before you, what? Can you underline that? I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose what? Choose life. So that you and your children may live and you may love Yahweh your God and listen to His voice and hold fast to him, for Yahweh is your life and he will give you many years in the land He swore to give you your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob And so this is how this story starts. I, I love you we've entered this love relationship if you're faithful to me as As a bride to your husband, your life will be blessed in every way. If you choose to rebel, your life will be destroyed. Choose life. It's how the story starts. Choice and consequence. But it's also the message that the prophets reiterated over and over and over again. Today we talked about the dedication of the temple and how how Solomon said, God, would you bless us? Would you come put your name here? And how God said yes and filled this, the place with his spirit. I put there on your note sheet. This is that prayer. After, after Solomon uh, asked God to come and to, to, be in the, in, in, to be in the temple, this is what uh, God spoke to him in a dream that night in, in 1 Kings 9. Yahweh said to him, to Solomon, I've heard the prayer and plea you've made before me. And I have consecrated this temple, which you've built by putting my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if, it's a conditional promise, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever." As I promised David your father when I said, you'll never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Then, but right? Here's the the big but. I have to say that carefully. <laughs> but If you or your descendants turn away from me and you don't observe the commands and decrees I've given you and you go off and you serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them. I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among the peoples that this temple will become a heap of rubble. Turn the page if you're late. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has Yahweh done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And people will answer, because they have forsaken Yahweh their God who brought their ancestors up out of Egypt and they've embraced other gods worshiping and serving them. That is why Yahweh brought the disaster on them. Now, is that pretty clear? It's, the story starts off clear. In Deuteronomy, when they dedicate the temple, God himself comes to Solomon. Make sure they're clear. Over the years, time and time again, prophets are sent to remind them of this message. That your choices really matter. Life is not a game. Choose wisely. I set before you life and death. Choose life that you may live. Over and over and over. And they resisted and rejected because they didn't believe this consequence would ever happen. In fact, in the time of Jeremiah, who was alive in the city when it was captured... In chapter six, he says, do not trust in the deceptive words of false prophets that come to the temple and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jerusalem is safe because God will never allow anyone to take down his house. We are safe in this place. They didn't believe that choice leads to consequence. But the message all through the Bible is choose wisely. It's at the garden, the two trees. We see it in the prophets. We see it here, and we see it in Jesus. Look at your note sheet in Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. See if this sounds familiar. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to what? Death. Yeah, like death. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And for, hey, there are two paths. There's a path of blessing. There's a pathing of curse. There's a path of life. There's a path of death. choose wisely from beginning to end. Now, men and women, this is not just a message for Israel. This is a message for us. We live in a culture today, and as followers of Jesus, in the midst of a culture, our minds are often being conformed to our culture instead of transformed. And we live in a culture today that's all about choice. We are big on choice, we don't want anyone to mess with our choices. Don't tell me what I can believe. Don't tell me what I can do. Don't tell me who I am. I can choose to be whoever I want. We're a culture that's big on choice, but we are a culture that's losing the connection between choice and consequence. We're a culture today that we don't want there to be in consequences. You can make any choices you want, good, bad, or otherwise, and we don't wanna believe there are any consequences. And it's in every part of our culture, education, business, military, politics. This is throughout our culture. We're a culture that's losing the connection between choice and consequence. We wanna believe that we can make whatever choices we want and there will always be a second chance. Not just a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a 15th chance. But that is not the way life works. God has given us this incredible ability of freedom of choice. He's designed us as free moral beings. You can choose right or you can choose wrong. It's your choice. God has given that, no one takes it away. It is your right to choose, but there are consequences. And you can choose life or you can choose death, but your choices really matter. Life is not a game. The choices you make today in your marriage. The choices you make in raising your kids. The choices you make in your sexuality. The choices you make in your finances. The choices you make with Jesus. You can choose whatever you want. God has given you that freedom. But don't ever think that there will not be consequences. God has given you freedom of choice. But if you choose wisely, the end result is life. You choose poorly, and the end result is death. Our choices really matter. Number two, we'll come back to that. Number two. The second principle that that jumps out, we see this first principle, this connection between choice and consequence. The second one is that God's mercy leads to second chances or third, or 18. We'll see that. Well, we've seen wrath is series This is two sides of God, right? that God's grace is amazing, but his wrath is real. And we see that today, don't we? We see his amazing grace to, to Israel time and time, like running after, like we saw in Ezekiel 16, like, like this kind of prostitute lover, him running after her, this incredible love, time and time again, sending his prophets to bring them back to covenant because he has compassion and pity on them. But we see there is a point of no return. There's a point of no remedy when the wrath and the judgment comes. It's what a good God does. A good God has to deal with evil. And if we refuse to be changed, then there's nothing to do but to be destroyed. But the story of Israel, in the midst of this judgment today, and we see the wrath being poured out in Jerusalem, in the midst of that judgment, we also see the silver lining of the mercy of God. We see it in the final line of Chronicles, oh, that passage we read, that, that, it, that they, they went into Babylon until the time of the Persian king. And we don't have time for that whole story, and this miraculous story about how God raises up this, Next superpower is a different international policy, and allows some to return for the story to go on. But what's amazing to me today is not just the story of Israel and to see God's grace and His mercy with Israel, but what's amazing is to see His grace and mercy with King Manasseh. And this is fascinating to me because if you just if all you had was Second Kings, the guy just dies, and it looks like hey, it looks like he got away with it, you know, whatever. But in in 2 Chronicles, we're given more information, more detailed information about the last years of his life. And it turns out that this wicked king, worst king in their history, slaughtering people, burning his kids in the fire, introducing adultery, maybe sawing Isaiah Isaiah in half, we don't know, but this horrible king that towards the end of his reign, that that the king of Assyria came. So remember, Assyria was the superpower before Babylon. The king of Assyria comes and his armies come and they are not happy with Manasseh and so they arrest him. And they lead him away to Babylon but they do it in the most humiliating way possible. They put bronze shackles on him and they actually put a hook in his nose to lead him. And this is what we know from history. We actually have like archeological uh, pictures of, of, you know, carved in stone of, uh, of Assyria. like. Uh, bringing their prisoners away with a hook in their nose. And, uh, and as, you, as you read this, you say, hey, this sounds more like it. This is kind of what a king like this should, should have happened to him. But what's amazing is it's not the end of Manasseh's story. It's one of the most amazing stories of God's mercy and grace in all the Bible. And, and I, I want you to follow along with me there. I put it in your note sheet it says, so the Lord, Yahweh, brought against them, this is uh, brought against Judah, the southern kingdom, the army commanders of the king of Assyria, and he took Manasseh prisoner, and he put a hook in his nose, and he bound him with bronze shackles, and he took him to Babylon. All right? so this is like, this is the low point of Manasseh's life. I mean, he's, he's gone from king to prisoner, he's got shackles on, he's hooking, he's humiliated, very likely he's naked, I mean, he's just, Humil- and he's taken and thrown in probably some dungeon. But the amazing thing is, is that sometimes when we're far from God, it takes a dungeon to help us come to our senses. And there in the, in the darkness of this dungeon or wherever he was, he begins to reflect on his life, the life he's lived, the evil he's done, the decision he's made to worship other gods, not to worship the God he was brought up with, the God of his youth, Yahweh. And in the midst of this darkness, he actually calls out to Yahweh. And the amazing thing is that Yahweh responds. And he says that in his distress, he sought the favor of Yahweh as God. And he humbled himself greatly before the God of his answers. And when he prayed to him, catch this, Yahweh was moved by his entreaty. And he listened to his plea. And so he brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Like, are you kidding me? Like, if I were there, my problem, my gut reaction would be, no, no, leave him, let's, get, let's kill this guy. This guy's horrible. He saw Isaiah in half. Let's saw him in half. But the mercy of Yahweh, that he actually engineered circumstances to bring him back. And when he brings him back, it says, Manasseh then knew that Yahweh was God, like the prodigal son, he'd come home, and afterward he built the outer wall of the city of David. He begins to re-fortify the nation. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah, but notice this, he gets rid of the foreign gods, and he removed that image, the image from the temple of Yahweh, as well as the altars he built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city, and he restored the altar of Yahweh, and he sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it. And he told Judah to serve Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. And the people, however, continued to sacrifice to these kind of illegal high places, but only to Yahweh, their God. And we don't know all the details of the story, how it all worked out. It seemed like whatever revival happens here is not very deep. But for Manasseh himself, there was a true turning to Yahweh. And though it wouldn't make up for all he'd done and, There's going to be ongoing consequences. You know, sometimes in our life, we we come back to God when we've been far away. We want him to remove all consequences, and that's just not even possible. It's like, no, there's consequences of our rebellion, and many times they're irreversible. You can't go back and re-raise your kids You can't go back and redo your marriage the last 20 years. Like we can't go back. There's often consequences and yet when we come back to the Lord, like, like the potter on the wheel, he takes that broken, cracked pot and he reforms it and he begins to reform something new and something useful and something beautiful. And that's what happens to Manasseh. And it's such a beautiful reminder that as long as we want to come home God's mercy is great. There comes a point we don't want to come home. We're beyond remedy. But as long as we want to come home, there's a God to welcome us back. His mercy leads to second chances. And so this leads to a key question in our life. And there in your note sheet, there's a section called uh, Israel's Tragic Tale. One key question. And as we land the plane today and begin to apply it to our lives, we've looked at these big picture principles about choice and consequences and God's mercy. Um, the question I have for you is, is a simple question, but it's powerful. It's profound, especially if the Holy Spirit chooses to use it today in your life and to speak to you. But the question is, who? Uh, what are you choosing? What are you choosing? We've seen this connection between choice and consequence but as we're moving in towards the end of this series what are you choosing you know are you choosing life or are you choosing death now I want to ask this question at a couple different levels I want to ask it at a macro level like the most important decision that any of us makes in our lives is whether to follow Jesus and give him our lives or not whether to follow Jesus or run after other gods or to be our own God. That's the the core decision of our life. Two paths in the middle of our life, they they diverge a narrow path, a wide path. And which path are you on? And this is the most important decision that we have to make is that, that, hey, God has given us life and death. Are you on the path that leads to life, the Jesus path, or are you on the path that leads to death, which is any other path other than Jesus? That's why this path is narrow, because it's Jesus only, And this path is anything else. Like there's a lot of ways to go wrong in life. There's only one way to go right. Remember what Jesus said, I'm the way, I am the truth, I am the, no one comes to the Father but by me. And so if you're on any other path other than Jesus' path, you're on the path of death. And so as we come to the end of this series, I want to start by asking that question which path are you on? And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus and you're, you're ready to do that, you're ready to say, I'm on the path to death, but like Manasseh, I want to humble myself and I want to come to, to Jesus. I want to come to Yahweh. I want to come to him and I want to give him my life and I want to ask him to forgive me for all I've done. I want to come under his leadership. I want to to be filled with his spirit. I wanna be transformed to be like him. I wanna become a follower of Jesus. If that's you today, you've never made that decision before, I'm gonna give you a chance in a few minutes to get on the right path, to make the right choice. But for the rest of us here that we've already given our life to Jesus, you know this and I know this, that there is a path that leads to life, a path that leads to death in every area of our life. And just because we've made the big picture decision to follow Jesus doesn't mean we're on the right path in every area. Like we can be on the wrong path in our marriage. We could be on the wrong path in our dating life. We could be on the wrong path in our sexuality. We could be on the wrong path in our finances. We go on the wrong path in our priorities. We could be uh, the wrong path in living for the popularity of the other people. There's a lot of well, wrong paths, and here's what I want you to catch: is that our choices in every area of these of our life have consequences, and often as followers of Jesus, we ignore this principle. I mean, while I'm following Jesus in these areas, I'm ignoring him in these, and I I think he'll let me slide. But what we see today is that choice always leads to consequence, and God never wastes words. When he tells you this is the path, walk ye in it, he's telling you that for a reason. And if you choose to ignore that path, you will pay the price. And we can rationalize this. And we say, well, I don't have to trust Jesus with my finances. Well, I don't have to trust him with my sexuality. Why don't to trust him with my priorities or this ethical thing at work or my marriage? Right? We, we, can, we can rationalize to ourselves that that's okay because I'm kind of following him in all these other areas. But I want to tell you, choice has consequence. And the wrong choice leads to death. If you're on the wrong path in the way you're parenting, it will lead to death in your children. You may not see it right now. They may be three years old right now, and right now they're controllable. And you're neglecting them, and you've got other priorities, and you're a dad, and you're playing video games all night long, or you're a mom who's always out with her friends, and you're always putting your child off, and you think it's okay. You think, hey, they're, they don't know. They're only three. Can I tell you something? There's gonna come a day when they're 13. And what you're investing now, you're gonna what you're reap what you're planting now, you're going to reap then. And when your kids turn thirteen, you need to be deeply invested in their heart and soul. So the loudest voice in their head is yours even when they don't want to hear it. Are you with me here? Your, your marriage may not where it need to be and you can ignore that. And you say, well I won't do that and I'll just go this way and I'll invest in porn, or I'll throw myself in my job or I'll be with my friends and just the marriage is over here but I'm not gonna do it the Jesus way. I'm not gonna learn to love my wife as, as, as Jesus loved the church. I'm not gonna learn to follow the leadership of my husband. I'm not gonna respect, I'm not gonna do that. And you say, I'm gonna do that and you know what? The, the kids are gonna grow up and they're gonna leave and all of a sudden you're gonna have nothing to keep you together and you wonder what happened what happened is you made wrong choices for the last 20 years and now the consequences are coming are you with me well I could go on and I wish I could I wish I could go on for an hour and talk through your priorities and talk through every area of your life. But I'm telling you, choice leads to consequences. In every area of our life, there is life and there is death, so choose wisely. And if you think you can violate the teaching of Jesus and not pay the price, you are in spiritual la-la land. Choice leads to consequence. Not some of the times, not many times, but every time. And so as we begin to approach the industry, the question I have for you is what are you choosing? Amen? Let's pray. While our heads are bowed and we're reflecting on this message on each of our lives, I wanna lead us in a time of prayer and then a time of worship. while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I wanna talk first with those of you who have not yet given your life to Jesus and you, the Holy Spirit today has been opening your eyes. He's creating a hunger and a passion. You want Jesus, you want him. You want to be forgiven of your sins. Like Manasseh, you want to come out of the dungeon of your life. You want to come into the light of the king. You, you want to receive the gift of his spirit. You want the new life that he came to give you. And if that's you and you're ready to repent and turn from your sin and humble yourself and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone is your path to life, is the way, the truth, and the life that leads you to the Father, he alone then right now I want to give you that chance. And so I'm going to pray a, pray a very simple prayer. And this expresses the desire of your heart. Just pray along with me. in Your heart, your mind, your brain. Jesus will hear. If you're sincere, he will hear. And he will respond just like he did to Manasseh. And so pray with me. Dear Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to forgive me for all my sin, my rebellion. I pray that you would forgive me based on your death for me on the cross. I ask you to to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Change me from the inside out to be like you. Teach me how to follow so I can follow you not just in this life but forever. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you just Ask Jesus into your life. First of all, I want to welcome you into his kingdom, the family of God. And secondly, uh, I want to write you a letter this week, send you a letter. This was some first steps of how to begin this new relationship with Jesus. <coughs> so inside your program is a little card called the Connect Card. And what I ask you to do is just to write your name on the front, your address and all, your, your contact information, and then on the back, say, ask Jesus into my life, I prayed the prayer, something like that, and we'll, we'll send you that letter. And for the rest of us, as our heads are bowed and our, our eyes are closed, you know, maybe God's speaking to you today, maybe it's about your marriage or your family or your, your career or the area of obedience or your sexuality your dating, what, whatever the area is, And this is a beautiful time for you to humble yourself like Manasseh and to tear down that high place and to say, Lord, I'm just sorry. I want to, I want to listen and follow because I, I believe your word and I want to choose life, not death, in this area of my life. And so as we worship now and we, we sing about his will and his way, and we don't want to get in his way. We don't want to stop what he's doing in our life that this would be a time for you to not only sing the melody but sing the words and embrace these lyrics to make them your prayer as we worship together. And so, Lord, as we come into your presence now, as we bring you our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, we use these to build a kingdom that is truly listening and following here at Rocky Peak. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with me?